Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we get started, are you thinking of creating a podcast or are you a podcast host already? As a podcast strategist, I can help you to launch or relaunch a purposeful and profitable podcast, which will inspire, entertain and educate a global audience. Simply book in a one-to-one call with me right now via the Calendly link in the show notes and together we'll focus on the purpose of your podcast. Today on Focus on Why, I am joined by Mandy Barnett. Mandy, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Well, our paths have crossed a couple of times, actually, recently. First met you in Bristol at a PSA Southwest meeting, and then again a few weekends ago in London at the One of Many conference. So there is a reason we have been brought together, and I am absolutely thrilled to have you on Focus on Why. So what is it that you're doing at the moment, Mandy? Okay, well, I think you sort of alluded to that in mentioning about meeting at the Speakers Association. At the moment, I'm actually trying to work out belatedly how to become a self-publicist and marketer um, in order to get better known with the message that I'm trying to get out there, having not set out with a business plan or with any sense of where I thought what I was doing was going to go. So in a sense, literally what I'm doing at the moment is looking up all the people that I might be able to, to get in touch with and say, do you know about do you know about the book I've, I've written? And meanwhile, trying to do all the normal things alongside, because I also have a business as a property developer. So um, I'm also looking at sort of figures and business plans for that while trying to concentrate on all the, the new learning. I love that. So actually, our paths might have crossed in the property world if they hadn't crossed in this way. So that we are both talking about purpose here and we're both talking about professional speaking and also the property. But let's look at what it is that you are focusing on why right now. And you said that you didn't have a business plan per se, but you've got a very clear purpose. Share yeah. with us what that is. Well, basically, uh, I'll go back a bit more about how it came to be, but I've, I've written a book as a parent of two children who have Tourette syndrome. And how I came to write that book, we can discuss a bit more, but I want this, I want the message about the book to get out because I think it is an incredibly misunderstood condition. And in writing it, as I started to research more about it, I realized just how things that I thought had long since been laid to rest were still very much prevalent um, in in the wider press and and in the public um, idea about what Tourette's actually is and what it means for the people who have it. Writing this book started as a lockdown project. I wanted to to do something productive and and I was thinking about what subject I could look at coming from a non-fiction perspective and I wanted to write some sort of guidebook for parents and 
having both had both children diagnosed with Tourette's, I was aware that that was an issue, but I hadn't realised how much of an issue it had become until the lockdown itself. And um, it was actually a friend, I think, who pointed out to me and said, do you realise there's been a huge spike of cases in Tourette's coming out as a direct result of the mental stress that a lot of these kids have been under? So both kids with known Tourette's have been getting worse and a lot of kids have been coming out of the woodwork with new cases of, of certainly ticks, but in a lot of cases, actual Tourette's. And that made me think, well, this might be something I could actually talk about because I come from a perspective of having been a doctor, an educationalist, but also as a parent. So then I started actually researching it more and, and I started off really just focusing on my own experience as a parent and my own kids' experience. And then actually through my daughter, who's um, part of an online support group um, for teens with Tourette's. And she suggested she had been talking to some of her, her online friends and they had really responded to this idea that I might be writing a book. So we decided to write a, 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 a survey for them. And she and I put the questions together and we put this survey out online on her on the server. And what I got back was this absolute wave of loneliness, isolation, in some cases almost despair, the sense of being so misunderstood by their families, by their sometimes by their friends, but also being isolated from friends. In a lot of cases, um, you know, being isolated at school. And these kids were saying, please get your mum to write this book. It's, it's so important because the only place that they felt understood and the community was in this online group. And I suddenly realised that I, I thought the way that we had dealt with it was kind of the normal because we just dealt with it as it came along and I found out a bit more about it and worked out the best way that we could help our kids. And it kind of came as a bit of a shock to me to realise that wasn't the case for all the for all children and that so many of these kids were really struggling. And also that when I did look into it, so much of what was out there in terms of the public domain was the most extreme versions. It was it was movies. It was documentaries, um, some of them very well done. But what they focused on was the most extreme cases. And you know, the, the one that everybody knows about, which is, is people swearing and shouting. And I think what I realized with through having had my own kids was that first of all, that represented a very extreme end of the spectrum, but also that there was an awful lot more to Tourette's than just the ticks. And that actually. My kids' experience was that it was the associated conditions that caused them the most issues rather than the ticks themselves. You know, the ticks could be troublesome, and we had to figure out ways to deal with them when they were troublesome. But one of the features of Tourette's is that the ticks themselves change in individuals a lot over time. They can change almost daily, but certainly over weeks and months. 
So someone might have a very troublesome tick at one point and then that tick can completely fade away. And in most kids with Tourette's, they, they, they tend to start developing them usually before the age of 10. They may not be recognized as ticks, but that's usually when they start. And then they tend to peak um, during adolescence. And in most cases, as they reach the end of adolescence, they reach late teens and early 20s, the ticks will gradually, in some cases, almost disappear altogether. They certainly can become much more manageable. So that in a way, the, 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 the peak years are between about 10 and 20. And why that is so important is because for those children, it's when they're forming their, their image of themselves, when they are developing their, um, their social relationships, when they are trying to develop their independence, and also when they are going through um, late primary and secondary school. And I think the thing that I became very aware of was how the lack of understanding of Tourette's in its wider context really could impact hugely on how these kids were supported at school and their educational attainment and their belief in what they could do. So that if, it, if they were not supported, if it was not recognized and they didn't get the appropriate support, they could end up you know, coming out at the end of the school system feeling totally freakish and, and without any sense of what they could do in life and, and often having failed all their exams. And whether, you know, whether or not you believe that exams should be important, they are. And I think coming from it as an educationalist, that was one of the things that struck me was the least addressed in, in any of the media reports. It was all about the impact in terms of kids being bullied, which obviously is very important, but it didn't look at what the educational aspects were in, in the actual teaching and learning context. And I think that was one of the things that I was very aware of had impacted on my children. And it's interesting because you you said that from your perspective, you were dealing it as with with the different presentations of the Tourette syndrome as they were coming along. And you did have those different perspectives of being a parent, a doctor and an educationalist. And yet that wasn't the norm for a lot of other people who were going through it. And, and then receiving these survey results, being hit with this wave of loneliness and isolation and despair. What will the book hope what do you hope the book to achieve and resolve for so many out there I think that what was what came back from the, these kids was how many of them felt that their immediate family and in, and sometimes their teachers didn't believe what was happening to them was real they they talked about um they talked about being accused of making it up or faking it or of um, you know making it more for, for attention seeking um, at school, they were thought to be disruptive. Um, they might be asked to leave the classroom because they were being noisy. The teachers wouldn't understand why they hadn't been able to concentrate because either they were making a noise because they were ticking, or they were working so hard to suppress their ticks they couldn't concentrate on their schoolwork. So that you know either way they came out of it badly. Um, and I think 
what I wanted the book to say. And, and I think in, in, this, in writing the structure of the book, I really, how I started it was like, you know, sort of trying to explain what it is in the, in the widest sense, but also what it is not. And also to bring in all the associated problems that can both blur the picture, but also add to the picture of Tourette's because a lot of kids with Tourette's also have obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and a lot of them also have attention deficit disorder, ADHD. Not all of them have both, but it's, it's, a, it's a much higher preponderance in that community than in the population at large. So these kids have sort of a triple whammy going on. And in addition, because of the Tourette's, because of the OCD, because of the ADHD, a lot of them also have um, huge problems with anxiety. And then their anxiety um, exacerbates their tics and their tics exacerbate their anxiety. So it's a really vicious cycle. So what I wanted to bring home in the book was without wanting parents to feel that they were just being kind of lumbered with all these other difficult situations. So I wrote the book during the pandemic. I was very aware that people were already struggling. Um, you know, they might have lost their <clears throat> they might have lost their jobs. Um, they might be trying to homeschool. You know, there could be all sorts of stuff going on. They might have you know they might have had a relationship breakdown and become a single parent. Um, so it was trying to say, you know, I'm not expecting you to become this perfect parent, but these are the things that if you can understand this. And if you can approach some of these things with your child, um, then without having to necessarily do very much more, you could immeasurably improve your child's experience. And the first thing is acknowledging it at home and believe them. If they're, you know, the, the, the one thing I wrote in, in chapter two was believe that this is real. Your child is not making it up. They are not doing this for fun. It is not something that is voluntary. It is not under their control. Even if what they do may seem a very coordinated movement because a lot of the ticks can appear very coordinated. Sometimes in young children, when they first start, it may not be obvious it's a tick. Um, I mean, in our son's case, he started off with blinking his eye and he was about eight, seven or eight. And I mean, we, we asked him what was wrong because we could see him doing it. And he said it felt irritating. We actually thought he had conjunctivitis. You know, he actually went and got eye drops and then it didn't go away. And then we said, well, it, it still seems to be happening. And he said, well, it doesn't, it's not sore. I just feel I have to blink. It feels, and he was able to say it was more of an irritable feeling rather than irritated. And I think that's when we started to realize it wasn't something that was just in his eye. And, but it was only when he started having an arm flinging and also then started making little squeaking noises. So he had the first of his vocal tics and then a more obvious motor tic. And the motor, the, the, the arm flinging in particular really alerted me because he was flinging his arm out at the elbow and it was actually hurting him but he couldn't stop doing it. And I think that's when, for me, the realization that this was actually something much more complex. And that's when I started looking it up. And I think with some of these kids, they might describe something like, um, you know, they'll be at school and they'll be 
they'll somebody will put something on their desk and they'll throw it. And it looks like, you know, they're being silly or they're trying to attract attention. And people don't realize that the actual throwing is a tick. Um, so it, it was getting them to realize that it was getting, it was trying to say to parents, actually, first of all, you need to recognize this, but also you need to start early to try and get a label. And although you might not want your child to have a label, it's absolutely fundamental to them getting help later on. And one of the problems in, in the UK especially is that, although in fact it's probably worldwide, is, is that it takes a very long time to get these kids diagnosed, simply because of the, 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 the lack of people out there who are actually properly trained and qualified to assess them. But in the meantime, even while it might take you years to get your child diagnosed, you can still start putting in place the things that will help them. That's both at home and also, and especially in the education system. Because although it helps to have a medical diagnosis, the education system can respond, even if you don't yet have a medical diagnosis. It's knowing who you need to go to and what you need to get them to do to get your child the, the right support in place. So the things that you need to do or can do as a parent are actually very simple. It's just knowing that that will make a difference and being able to start the things early enough so that your child isn't completely traumatized and devastated by the time they reach 15 or 16. And this is what's so interesting is your friend who said, did you realize that there'd been a huge spike during the lockdown period and linked to the mental health and the well-being? And what's really interesting is had we not had the lockdown, yes, there may not have been a spike, but this for you would not have happened. This, this book might not have manifested in the way that it has because of the experiences that you had with your children and the experiences they had with online support. So it's one of those other sort of bittersweet solution or solutions, but sort of actions that have happened as a result of the pandemic. Yes. And, um, and I think because I was, I, I was thinking of, I was almost the other way around. I was thinking of writing a book because I wanted something useful to do. And um, originally I was going to write a book about a completely different topic. Um, so it would have been a very different book and it, it related to, to an, an illness that my daughter had prior to, to lockdown, which is completely unrelated to her Tourette's, but had made me start reprioritizing and refocusing on what I was trying to do, you know, with my life as it were. So it, it was, it, the book I would have written would have been very different had it not been had it not been for the for the spike in the pandemic. And that other book may still be yet to be written, surely. I'm not going to be in a hurry to write another <laughs> book. It's, I have to say it was um, writing it was a, an enormous labour of love and it got more and more complex because Coming from a, a, a medical research background, I, I find it very difficult to, to leave things alone. So I was, you know, after I'd, I, it took me about four or five months to write my first draft, but then I started researching it more. 
And the more I researched, the more I found, the more I wanted to add to it. Um, so it took me about a, a year to complete the writing and editing. Um, and then I realized that that was just the start because, you know, sort of when I went live on Amazon, I was kind of half expecting this sort of rush of people to, you know, sort of knocking me over to get to the book. And of course they, they, they didn't. Um, so it's like, okay, well now I actually need to, if I want people to read this and I, and I do, because I think it's incredibly important. And one of the things that I did do was I, I went out through the Tourette's community. So I have, um, I have got various Tourette's influencers who are kind of looking at promoting it. And I also, I also got in touch with Tourette's Action very early on, who are the, the national UK charity, um, because I wanted, I wanted to be able to um, donate a, a percentage of, of my royalties to them, because I think what they have done is phenomenal in terms of just partly producing awareness, but also in, in terms of really patient-driven, practical research that has the potential to make an enormous benefit. Because I think, I think one of the things is that a lot of the early focus, I mean, when I was looking through trying to research it, a lot of the focus was very much on the causes of Tourette's, the genetic influences of Tourette's, um, and describing all the difficulties it, it causes, which in, a, in some people can be enormous. I mean, it can be very debilitating, but what it didn't do was look at all the ways in which it could positively add to people's lives. And I think one of the things that through Tourette's action and then through some of the through some of the people who are out there now on the internet and um, and through people who are not necessarily working to promote Tourette's, but are simply working in their own fields, but happen to have Tourette's, it's coming out more and more that actually, not only does it not have to define you, but it can be a positive part of who you are. And a lot of Tourette's are now saying, you know, actually it's up to the rest of the world to adapt to us not the other way around. We, we bring amazing qualities of creativity and ability. And actually it's time for people to recognize that side of it and not just assume that we are in some way diminished. So Mandy, you haven't mentioned the title of the book yet. Well, the title of the book very much comes from my, my thoughts about the misconception and it's, Basically, what it's called is it's not all about swearing. And then my, the subtitle is a practical guide to Tourette's syndrome for parents in a post-pandemic world, because I think the pandemic has changed the world for Tourette's and also for perceptions of what about mental health globally. Um, and I think and also because I think one of the things the pandemic has done is it forced people to look at different ways of working both in work and educationally. And one of the things for a lot of kids with Tourette's is getting more support in school. And I think having that focus on actually how are we supporting children to learn has also been catalyzed by, by the pandemic. So I'm, I'm hoping that by putting my book in a, in a time context, it may also hopefully mark some sort of watershed in the way that people think about it. Uh, absolutely. And it's not all about swearing. And you've made that perfectly clear that there are lots of other complex conditions that are related to this. And there, it's not 
just that and that you're allaying to or putting to to bed those sort of warped ideas that people have and you said particularly in the media and, and sort of online what's the the mission mandy what's the the dream that you want to achieve um i think at i mean at a personal level i i'm not setting out to do anything mega i i you know i'm i'm not a coach i don't have i don't have a business as as i as i, as I alluded to i i i left medicine in 2015 and I very much wanted to sort of sail off into the sunset um so this kind of came came out of came out of left field really but what I, I suppose if I have a mission it is that I want I want other children to be able to count on the people around them to support them I want them to know that those people understand what is happening to and for them and to support them so that they don't have to go through some of the very sad things that I've you know I've, I've heard about from some of these other kids I, I don't want those kids to ever have to experience those things and I want them to be able to be in a society that acknowledges not only that they can't help the things that might seem odd, but that also they bring something often very special and often very unique talents to the world and to society. Um, I just, I suppose I just like, I just like to be part of that wave that is just as a, a more inclusive society in the widest sense. Um, which is a bit is a bit vague, I suppose, but but I think that's that's where I'm coming from. I, 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 I going back to how the fact that I thought what we did with our children was just the way everybody did it, and then realizing that they didn't, and realizing that some of these kids do struggle enormously. I want that to change. I want those kids to grow up knowing that they can do what they want to do, knowing that they're that they're um, their lives are not defined by their Tourette's. And having you leaving the medical practice, although it's very difficult to sort of put a, a, a boundary up of saying that's that's not part of my life anymore because it's still very much who you are and and the way that your your thinking is. You mentioned that in the way that you approach the research for the book. Uh, you have redefined your purpose and your focus right now, but more so from the parent perspective. Is, is that's what you want to be seen as, as, as opposed to an expert in the medical profession in this area? Yes, because I think I mean, one of the points that I'm very clear about at the beginning of the book is I am not a specialist in Tourette's. I am not a children's teacher and I'm not a children's therapist. What I brought to it from my medical background was the I suppose the ability to to work out what was going on to know the most reliable sources to look for um, and to approach it as a problem solving exercise I think that was what I brought from it so I think what I and I, I suppose what I also wanted people to understand was that the book itself 
is written very much from a parental perspective, but I wanted to make it very clearly evidence-based. That's where my medical background and my education background came in. I wanted to make sure that anybody reading it knows that I don't say anything that I can't stand by and cite um, work that has been done to underpin it. I'm not, I'm, I'm expressing my opinion of the anecdotes of, the, of our family, but the book is written very much with the, the evidence in mind. Um, and that was very important to me because I think there, there, is, there is potential for a lot of rubbish out there. Um, and I want people to be able to rely on this as a, as a, as a real guidebook, not, not just, um, you know, not just a mummy memoir. Yeah. And, and the, you mentioned that you wanted to sort of hang up your boots sort of your, of your medical profession and sell into the sunset. That clearly is not happening. That clearly is, is, <laughs> is, is not going to be on the cards for a while. And, and you're also got your property portfolio that you're working on as well and doing property development. So it's, it's interesting. It, there's a, there doesn't seem to be a down or off switch for you, Mandy. No, I'm not very good at that. <laughs> um, I think, I, I, I think I'm, I mean, I was, I was, one of the things I was looking at was, was, you know, what are my, what are my high level values? Um, and I've got it written on my notice board. Um, and the ones I've got written down are integrity, growth, love, health, and fairness. And the only thing I think that's changed around a little bit is, is health has become top because my daughter was actually very ill a, few, a couple of years ago and that, that reshaped a lot for me. But I think otherwise top of my list is, is both growth, learning and integrity and fairness. And I think I've always, I think my drive when I was in medicine was very much both the learning side, but also the, the fairness. I mean, the, I, I was less interested in the science of it. What I was interested in was trying to achieve the best outcomes for people, um, whatever that might be in, the, in that in, in their particular circumstance. And I think that's what always drove me. I mean, from the very moment start, when I started medicine, because I was, I was in a, a cohort that started way, way back. I was the first intake after the Sex Discrimination Act. I was the first group of medical students where we were 52% women in my year, as opposed to having a quota of 30%, which sounds ridiculous now, but that's actually what was normal. Um, and so for me, it's, it's always been about how can I make that difference to the people, whether that's people in front of me or, or in the wider context. Um, and my focus in my medical career was on communication. It was on improving the doctor-patient relationship. It was on improving team working. Um, the medicine was almost a byproduct. It was it was the way I I kind of got into the system in a way. Um, so I think to that extent, I, that's the bit I've never been able to let go of. And since I since I left medicine, I burnt out in my actual medical career, but I've never learned. I've never left that. First of all, that need to carry on learning. Um, the idea of, although I quite like the idea of growing vegetables, the idea of retiring to my vegetable patch just was never going to be on. Um, and it's also about achieving something in terms of, 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 of fairness and equity. 
Um, I'm very, I'm very aware that I am incredibly fortunate in that both that I was able to follow the career path that I wanted, that I grew up at a time when a university education was free, that I grew up at a time when as a junior doctor, I could buy my own flat as a single woman on a single woman's salary. Um, you know, th those things have all changed enormously. And while I cannot single-handedly make a difference to those big changes in the way that things function, I suppose I, what I still want to be able to do is to make a change to the people that I can make a difference to and to their circumstances. And at this present time, it's having been a parent of children with Tourette's, this is what has become my focus. I don't know if it will be my focus going forward, but it's certainly my focus at the moment. I want, I want those kids to have a, a better start. And it's interesting because you, you were listing your values, your high level values that you had listed on your board. And you said that health was at the top and then it was growth and learning. And then integrity and fairness came in there. What you didn't mention was love. And I'm wondering whether love is actually at the top of all of those. And it sits above everything. You're just your love for people and family and every, and the way that you want to just encapsulate everything you do. I suppose when I when I think about I, I suppose my it's my misperception of when I think about love I'm thinking very much about kind of love, <laughs> but but yes I think I think um, I always remember somebody saying something to me which I I thought was terribly sad at the time it was I was I was on a holiday and somebody found out I was a doctor, and they said we didn't I didn't realise that you were a doctor because you're too kind. Hmm. And I thought, what does that say? What does that say about how people perceive my profession, which I, I, had an, I had a huge passion about. And I didn't always sit comfortably in it, but I was very passionate about it. And I think one of the things that I have seen, and to some extent I've tried to be part of, is, is bringing that sense of... of caring in the most real practical sense into um, how I perceive my, my professional colleagues working. Um, and that, you know, when I was in medicine, that was one of the things I tried, probably was my biggest mission then was to try and change both the way they work so that what they, their sense of caring was very real, but their way of getting it over wasn't always um, as effective as they, thought it might be um and so yes I think I think it's love in the love in the in the broadest sense um I I care That's, that sounds a bit trite but I I think you know I I care about what happens to people I care about I care about what happens to the planet I mean I sometimes wish I didn't care as much because it gives me sleepless nights but I, and I think, so I've always tried to find something that I could both not only care about, but do something about. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I, like, I like doing something practical to make a difference. I like taking action. Um, and so I think whether that's learning something new, doing something new, teaching something new, um, 
but ultimately it is it's I you know I, I love I love my family very much which is why I wanted to make things the best possible for them um and and I felt for the kids that I heard about I don't know them but that sense of they deserve so much more so I suppose in that sense yes in the widest sense it's it's love yeah I love that and when that comment was made about you're too kind to be a doctor and I'm wondering whether the the perception was meant in in the sense that to be a doctor you have to be a little bit more remote because you can't let all your emotions out because you have to focus on what's needed. So it's not that you're not kind and not that doctors aren't kind. It's just that they are not able to show that emotion, particularly all the time because of, of the work that they're involved in. I think that's true, though. I think one of the things that has happened over the, over my lifetime in medicine is that I think it has, it has become it has become much more acceptable both for doctors to show how they are honestly feeling and for for the public to recognize them as people now that may not always be comfortable because sometimes you want your doctor to be um you know you want to feel they know everything and they don't um but i think it's it has become much more acceptable and whether that's because there are more women in medicine or just because society has changed, I'm not sure, you know, it, it's, it's a, all those factors. But I think, I think one of the things that I felt is that in order to do that, in order to allow your doctors to be people, you also have to be able to support them. And I think one of the things that I, I burnt out, I burnt out in 2014, I'd been a doctor for 33 years and I'd been a consultant. I was, I was a consultant in adult end of life care. Um, and I cared. And I, I always felt at a personal level because I felt to do my job effectively, which was relating to families and patients in a very, very difficult stage of their lives. I had to be able to care and I had to be able to convey that to them. Um, but it also was the reason why I burnt out. Um, not because, actually not because of the patients, but because of the difficult, the practical difficulty of being able to do the job well, which became more and more of an issue, the more it, the more funding became um, constrained or directed so that I could no longer just have the influence that patients thought I had. And I got to a point where I realized that I was starting to stop caring because it was the only way I could protect myself. And I thought, if, I'm, if I get to a point where I stop caring, then I can no longer do my job. And I would actually rather go while people say, isn't it a shame she left and not, isn't she going to leave? And I saw that happen to other colleagues who, who carried on and actually people just wish they'd gone and I wanted to go at the point where people say you know we're we're, we're so sorry you're, that you're, you're going and I can see how it would have been in huge conflict with your values because of the integrity and the fairness and the way that you wanted to treat people was not you weren't able to in in your manner you wanted to so 
Oh, Mandy, wow, what a conversation. There's so many different ways I'd love to continue this conversation, but we've, we've come to our end here. So thank you for sharing your why. How could people get in contact with you? What's the best way for them to reach out to you and to find your book? Okay, um, well, the book is out on Amazon. Um, it's in paperback and Kindle form. Um, it's published through my own publishing company called Compton Grey Books. I'm not a great social media person, but I am on um, I, I'm on I, I, I'm on um, LinkedIn. I have an email which I think will be available to people looking who come onto the podcast. I have an Instagram account which I'm trying to work out how to use a bit more. Um, and probably the easiest thing is for people to email me, email me or or contact me via LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I'm in process of trying to set up a Facebook page for the book, but I haven't got very far with it. Perfect. Well, those all those links will be made available in the show notes. And if you're listening to this later down the line, we'll add in your extra Facebook page link as well. Mandy, it has been an absolute pleasure and I'm looking forward to spending more time with you over the next year because we've just involved, we're both enrolled in a programme together. So that's going to be fantastic and watching your journey and see the way that you are going to be championing your mission is going to be fantastic. So really looking forward to, to being alongside you there. Have you got some final words for the audience, please, Mandy? I think just going back to the whole point of the book, Tourette's, it is it's a lot more common than you think. It doesn't have to define you. It can be positively creative, but you or if, if it's your child, you need to have the support in place to be able to achieve those things. So if you haven't got it, find it, believe your child and support them. How has this conversation had an impact on you? What value have you received from tuning in? What are your reflections with actions? Please take a moment to leave me an Apple podcast or Spotify review sharing how Focus on Why has made a difference to you today. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, simply connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or join the Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.